Welcome to Infection Prevention Spotlight with Certified Infection Control Nurse, Kara Mullane. Welcome to the research behind infection prevention. Today, Dr. Mohamed Yassin and I interview infection prevention icon, Dr. Elaine Larson, and she shares her inspiring journey with us. Today's podcast is a collaboration between Infection Prevention Spotlight and the American Journal of Infection Control. Hello, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Dr. Mohamed Yassin and I are very excited to have Elaine Larson join us today. So Elaine Larson is Anna C. Maxwell Professor Emerita and Special Lecturer at Columbia University School of Nursing and was Professor of Epidemiology at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health in 1999 to 2020. She is a former Dean of Georgetown University School of Nursing. She's a fellow in the National Academy of Medicine Society for Healthcare Epidemiologists of America, Association of Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. American Academy of Nursing. She was the editor of the American Journal of Infection Control for 25 years from 1995 to 2020 and has published more than 400 journal articles, four books, and a number of book chapters in the areas of infection prevention, epidemiology, and clinical research and has served as a consultant in infection control and nursing in international settings. Currently, Dr. Larson serves on the President's Advisory Committee to Combat Antibiotic Resistance and as a member of the Board of Directors of the Certification Board of Infection Control. So Dr. Larson, we are so grateful to have you join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Elaine, I I really feel you're very special to me. And, and I want to make sure that everyone listening to our podcast would understand why. And I do remember very well the first APIC conference I was going to. Your smile, your invitation to do part, push this organization forward. And you're working like a dynamo. You're doing the journal piece. You're talking to the speakers. You're helping everyone. Everyone comes and asks you questions. And in the middle of this, you spend time genuinely to look at every poster and every presentation, carefully asking questions, spiking interest and motivation in every young and mid-level and even expert level infection preventionist. I'm really, I cannot be more excited to meet with you and have this interview with you. Thank you so much for all what you did. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, the thing is, you always learn more when you're going around and, and looking at the posters and, and so forth. And it's, it's, a, it's a great pleasure. Dr. Larson, you are a pioneer in infection prevention, and your bio only tells a portion of your accomplishments during your expansive career. Your research and your position as editor of the American Journal of Infection Control are well known to many of us in this profession. But in this interview, we'd like to understand Elaine Larson better as a person, as a woman, and how that woman traversed through her life from a young woman entering nursing school to being on the President's Advisory Committee today. I do hope that your personal story will inspire others to start on their dreams or for others to keep going and reaching for their goals, no matter how high or how far they seem at this moment. You started as a nurse in 1965 as you graduated from the University of Washington. And I just want to tell you, I was I was really excited to, uh, to hear that because I too went to University of Washington for nursing school. But I want to go back a little bit further. You were a young girl in high school and college was still just a dream. How did you get there? And why did you choose nursing as your focus? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm actually the first uh, 
woman in my family to graduate from high school. It was a it was a, a long journey, but I really felt very strongly about joining a profession where one could contribute. And frankly, it was like almost 60 years ago. So I think in those days, I didn't really, I, I had never thought about other professions because, because as I said, first woman to go to graduate from high school, I just uh, thought that, thought about teaching, thought about nursing. I thought about the standard things that nurses did in those days. And it seemed like the, it seemed like an important thing to do. So that's sort of why I was, you know, raised, my father was a sailor in the Navy and my mother was um, a dancer and a model and just sort of, it. I, I didn't want to do the fashion thing and I didn't particularly want to be a sailor in the Navy. So it didn't <laughs> seem like <laughs> there were that many choices in those days. Now, of course, you know, there are lots of choices for women and uh, it, it seems very old fashioned now. So how did you choose uh, University of Washington then? Well, I actually, because we, we lived in Washington State in a rural area and I didn't know that, frankly, one had options to go to school. I thought you just went wherever it was close. And my first year, I went to a small sort of religious school because at the time I was quite religious. And then I ran out of money. So I decided I had to go to a state school. Really pretty boring. I'm sorry. That's so funny. Did you, did you go to Gonzaga? Was that the school you went to? No, I went to Seattle Pacific University for my first year. And then, you know, the only option. And at that time, it was possible to go to a state school school and make your way. So I worked my way through school, working nights as a nursing aide. My first job I remember in college was as a chemistry lab as the cleaning person at night for 80 cents an hour. But that was plenty in that day. Well, that's great. So you're you're going to school, you're working hard, and you, you made it through school. Nursing school is not easy to make it through. That is for sure. Yeah. But, you know, University of Washington was a great place. And because I was socialized there, one of the things I graduated with was a strong belief that it was part of the nurse's role to ask questions, to solve problems, and to, uh, if you didn't know the answer to the questions, try to figure it out. And it really was years later that I realized that not all nursing schools had that same attitude, that you go, you don't just ignore the issues that you have. If you have problems, you try to solve them. And it was a fantastic fantastic education. I was very lucky. Right. Exactly. That's wonderful. I feel the same way. Yeah. I, I felt like the, the, the faculty there were amazing. Yeah. It was a ter terrific legacy mm -hmm. and just by chance because it happened to be where I lived. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So what were your beginnings as a nurse in terms of you're, you're working as a nurse, you're working in a hospital? What, what was it like as, as a new nurse? Yeah, well, I, I remember the first year that I graduated from, from the university with my baccalaureate. I was working on a medical unit and a dialysis unit. And what really got me interested in research, for example, is I had a young patient. She was about 35 years old. At the time, it didn't seem young to me, but it is now. And she had rheumatic heart disease, which was very common in those days. It's not very common nowadays because rheumatic fever is generally controlled with penicillin. But in those days, it was very common. And rheumatic heart disease was quite common 
because there wasn't penicillin before that. And she called me into her room and she said, I'm not feeling very well. I feel like I'm, I'm not well. So I took her, you know, blood pressure. I took her pulse. I listened to her respiratory rate. And it was even before, it was just a regular medical unit. So it wasn't like she was being monitored electronically. She seemed okay. So I propped her up with a pillow and told her to call me if she needed anything. Within 30 minutes, she was dead. She died of acute pulmonary edema. And it was the first patient that I'd had that died. I had just graduated less than six months from my baccalaureate. And I thought, how in the world did I miss this? How in the world can I keep that from happening again? Not that I can control her dying, but that I could have picked it up. So I decided to uh, make it sort of a case study. And I read all I could about acute pulmonary edema. I wrote a paper, a, a case study, which would never get published now. But I sent it to the American Journal of Nursing because that's what you did. What, you know, I was trained that this is part of what we do is we assess what we do. And the AGN published it. And and the editor sent me a letter and she said, I wish more clinical nurses would write about their experiences. And it grabbed me. I was sold on the importance of trying to understand what you do, to learn from what you do, solve the problems that you have and move forward. So that really was the turning point for me with becoming, if you will, sort of a researcher. I didn't call it in those days, but basically just trying to ask questions and not ignore when a problem came up. Wow, that's great. That was so great that she supported you. You know, she went that extra step to send that nice note, you know, to the, to the young nurse to say, hey, this is great. And basically, as I said, it would never get published now. I think my only reference was some medical book. You know, there, there were no case, there was there were no journal publications or anything. But really, you you realize you never know what impact you're going to have. That's right. That's exactly right. As we're moving along in in your life, so you're you're working, you're you're looking at, at things and understanding as things come through. I know you did go on to get your master's at University of Washington. You know, at that time, getting your master's, it's not the norm, definitely not for a woman, but you you decided that you wanted to go get your master's at that time. What inspired you to go on for your further education? Well, I think each time I got a degree, it was because I needed to answer some questions and I didn't have the knowledge that I needed. After I worked on a medical unit, I worked in a cardiothoracic intensive care unit, and then I was the first nurse in Washington State to help open a coronary care unit. And then I got a call from the hospital administration and they said, we want to see if a nurse can be a hospital epidemiologist. Would you be interested in taking a new job? So I thought, well, that sounds like fun. So then I realized though that I needed to know more about microbiology. So I went back and I got a master's degree, which was a, a double major in microbiology and in nursing. And I took the microbiology courses with the med student, with the med medical students in because there wasn't anything in nursing at the time in micro. And I just talked to the med medical school and I said, is there a way that I could take this course? And they said, okay. So that's how I got interested because I needed to know something to do a good job in my new job. That's great. You just kept going. Can I ask a little bit more personal? So you're a young woman. Are you married? Yes, actually. 
my my husband was a huge supporter. He and I went to high school together. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we actually got married when I was in college and we got engaged when I was a freshman, but we waited till I was a senior to make sure I got through. But he was a huge support and he was a sophomore in medical school when we got married, but he and I decided together to be a medical team, if you will. And so we supported each other through every one of our degrees and it's fantastic. Now we've been married 56 years, so he's a great guy. That's wonderful. So as, as we're moving along in your in your life, you just just to get through your education, I, you know, you do you went on to get your Ph.D. Why did you do that? Yeah. Well, at that time, I was working in intensive care unit and we the the hospital decided to build a new intensive care unit that would be private rooms for everybody. And in the old unit where I had originally worked, it was like one a five bed unit, but it was one big giant room. Right, And they decided to build individual rooms for two reasons. One was to reduce infection rates, and the other was to reduce ICU psychosis, that is confusion with all the stuff going around. And again, I thought, well, is that really going to help? Is that really going to do anything? So I met uh, another student who was getting his PhD in epidemiology, and um, I said, maybe as part of your dissertation or something, you could find out if this change in architecture is going to make any difference in the infection rates in the unit. So he and I, he was doing it for his dissertation and I was a staff nurse in the ICU and we decided to to do a a project to see if it made any difference. So we did a study and we, we didn't have any funding, but we actually were able to get some support from the hospital. And again, to answer a question, a clinical question because of my clinical work. We did this study. The results were published in the American Journal of Medicine some years later. And I thought, well, might as well get a PhD. So as I'm doing this research and I worked full time throughout the whole PhD time to, you know, just keep going. It was always because of some clinical issue that emerged that I wanted to ask a question for. I think the main thing is just be, you know, be mindful, be curious and be passionate about what you're doing. I actually feel sorry for nurses who uh, go on for their graduate degree, their master's or a PhD, and they come into the program and they're there to get a degree, not to answer a clinical problem. That's wrong because then they're like, oh, what am I going to do my thesis on? What am I going to do my PhD on? That's sort of the opposite of what one should be doing, I think. That's very inspiring and very impressive. A paper as a young nurse in the American Journal of Medicine, that is really a lot of the Green Journal. That's really very, very nice. Well, I was the middle author. The first author was the PhD student, and the last author was Walter Stamm, who's a famous infectious disease guy. So I was very lucky to meet a lot of interesting people, and from the beginning, to always have interdisciplinary work, to never feel like you have to just prove that you're, you know, a nurse or a physician or a pharmacist or whatever, but to always feel that you can have a team to work together. Can you tell us about your PhD dissertation? 
and what you worked on? Yeah, because of what we found in this study that we did was that the infection rates did not change after the architectural change. And serendipitously, we found out that the hand hygiene rates didn't change either. We weren't studying hand hygiene or hand washing. We were studying the architectural change, but by chance, we also kept track of how often people wash their hands and they didn't wash very often. And so I was trying to figure out why in the world, if we had made this huge, expensive architectural change and patients were all now isolated in their own separate rooms with an anti-room where people could wash their hands and stuff, why didn't the infection rates stop? So then I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll do hand hygiene. So for my PhD, I cultured the hands of the healthcare workers, about almost a thousand of them in the hospital, to see if their hand flora mimicked that was in the unit. And so I just wanted to try to understand what was going on with why, you know, with all this fancy architecture, weren't infection rates going on. And I found that a lot of the infections that were in the patients were the same organisms that were being carried by the hands of the healthcare professionals. So that was my PhD. And then it left, you know, went on from there. One thing always leads to another and you think you know an answer. And I remember actually in my PhD in epidemiology, the my committee first said, we already know everything there is to know about hand washing. This is not epidemiology. And I had to sort of talk them into the idea that I could do an epidemiologic study on hand hygiene. And so that was published in AGIC, is that correct? Yeah, that was one of my first first publications in AGIC for sure. Yeah, in the 80s. In the 80s. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about research and why it's so important for nurses to participate in research and to, to lead and run research projects? Yeah, I think that uh, often in academic settings with nurses who are academics, they can possibly lose track of the clinical problems that are going on. And on the other hand, so that's the academic side. They tend to be theoretical or academic. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. We need that too. On the clinical side, nurses are so busy just trying to take care of patients that when they encounter a problem, they just do what they did before that hopefully worked. And they don't have time to be mindful of asking the question in a way that might be answerable with research. So both the academics and the clinicians need to get together and appreciate what they have to offer. So I think academicians need to be closer to what's going on clinically. And clinical people need to not just think of academicians as academics, as, you know, something theoretical. And I think there's not enough interface between the two. I want to switch gears a little bit. I know you're a mother. When did you decide to have children? Well, my husband and I waited for seven years after we were married to make sure I got through school. (laughs) And uh, we waited till after I had my master's degree. And, um, you know, then, then we had kids. So I actually stayed home with the children for five years. It was tough to go back because five years is a long time to stay home. Mm-hmm. When you went back, did you go back to the to the clinical setting? Yes. I went back nights full time as a coronary care nurse to try to get my skills back up. Yeah. 
That was after my master's, before my PhD. So when I went into the PhD program, I was working full time with a two and a five year old. So I wouldn't recommend it. I was kind of hellish and I was in a hurry because we had little kids and I was working full time. But I would recommend that people take their time through their PhD to take advantage as much as they can of the opportunity to network and to learn from other people. I just want to get through. So I finished in three and a half years with a couple of little kids at home. This is really remarkable. I, I find that very inspiring for everyone. I, I see a lot of people when they are young, they're motivated. When they get to an obstacle like this, they stop and they say, how could I do it? And obviously you only kept getting better after that. Well, I mean, it wasn't easy and um, I have no regrets, but I do think that I, um, I was in such a hurry to keep moving along. And I think I might take more risks if I were going to go back and not be so worried about getting through and I might be more willing to try to make more mistakes and take more risks. What would you say to women in that same situation, thinking they have their career now, they, they want to have the family, but you know they're concerned about going back? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, well, you know, I had that problem. I was very worried that I would be a bad mother if I went back to work. And I really have looked around over the decades and I don't really see that children whose mothers work are hurt in any way. And in fact, I think that kids are proud of their mothers who accomplish things and feel good about it. But it's important that both parents are supportive of that and not that one of them is opposed to the other one doing what they do. The other thing is, I think that it's very important to have, an, have a support system that feels happy about what you're doing and happy about your accomplishments. Sometimes you see people whose partner or whose support systems are competitive rather than supportive and feeling happy. So again, I think it's really important to have a, a partner and your supports feel good of when you do well and feel proud of when you do well. That's the kind of partner that one needs to look for. I agree. That's wonderful. So your career has been very long and you're still going, it seems you were still going full force in your 60s. Yeah, when many yeah. people... No, wait, wait. I'm 77. I'm still working oh, I know, full but, time. I'm Exactly. But even in your, you know, 60s and 70s, you're going full force. And when, you know, many women and men might feel that their, you know, their best years have passed and they're concerned about growing older and still being vital and relevant. What do you say to them? Yeah, well, I have to say, to be honest, most of my students are far more advanced than I am in terms of certain things like technology and the ease with which they manage the Zooms and everything. Thing, but it's balanced out. So I think that one would hope that as you get older, you have a little bit different viewpoint so that I don't feel the need anymore, for example, to be first author on a paper or to be the PI on a grant. What I feel is the need to support other people and to try to learn from the you know successes and the failures that I've had over the years and to build wisdom. So I don't think wisdom automatically comes with age. Some people, you know, just get more of what they are as they get older. But I hope that you can have a broader perspective and see a little bit differently and appreciate the fact that you're not going to be as fast with a lot of things that are changing all the time. But you can hopefully be supportive and be positive and help mentor people. So that's sort of what I feel like I want to do right now. That's great. So as we wrap up, Elaine Larson today, what are your plans for two? 
2021? Well, I mean, personally, I'd like to travel a little bit, you know, (laughs) and see family and so forth. We haven't seen our son's family for almost a year because they're in Sweden. And my mother's 95 in Seattle, and I'd like to go see her before, you know, while she's still able. So that's personal. But in terms of uh, the work and so forth, and, you know, it sort of evolved. So now I'm very interested in bioethics. And so I chair two uh, ethics boards, one for Columbia and one for the New York Academy of Medicine. And uh, I'm very interested in bringing that sense of humanity humanity and values more to the research world and to the clinical world, if at all possible. And right now I'm working on a couple of projects that have to do with infection prevention in nursing homes. What I'm hoping is that maybe COVID, with all the horrible things that have gone on, might encourage the public to be more sustained in their hygienic practices, such as hand hygiene. Because we've worked for years and years on the behavioral aspects of hand hygiene to no avail, because people People, you know, change for a little while and then when things get better, they go back. So I hope that I can help work on more sustainable behavior change and public health change with hygiene practices. Oh, that's wonderful. I wish you luck. That's a great thing to work on. So I want to thank you, Dr. Larson. This has been amazing. Well, it's been great to talk to you and see you both. I cannot be happier. That's really nice. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Larson, for sharing your personal journey with us. And thanks to all of you for listening. From the American Journal of Infection Control and Infection Prevention Spotlight, thank you for all you do to keep your patients safe. Take care, and please remember, wash your hands.